empowered tool to make you great in the kingdom. God wants us all to be great, right? He loves us all. The minute we get <clears throat> saved, he loves us. He also wants us to be mature, right? He's committed to our growth. He's committed to the maturing process, right? And he has um, a preferred tool for making you mature, for making you wise. He has a way that he wants to bring you into spiritual maturity and greatness. And that method, that tool is something called time. Time. Sherry, I bet you're wiser today than you were 25 years ago. <laughs> Sometimes you wonder. Me too. <laughs> no, I, I know I am. Oh, goodness. I, I, I think of baby Autumn <laughs> starting out in life. I'm like, oh, why did I do that? Why did I say that? I make mistakes now. I just make different mistakes. <laughs> right? Because you learn a few things. God has a way. He's committed to your maturity. And guess what? He uses something called time. It just takes time. So in our fast food culture, right, where we don't like to wait for anything, if we go through McDonald's and they, we pull up to that window and they're like, Yes, ma'am, pull around the corner and we'll bring your burger out. What do I say? What did you have to do? Slaughter the cow? I don't say it to them, of course, because I'm nice. But I might say it to my family. Goodness, we're going through the drive-thru and it took 10 minutes to get my burger. Did they go have to pick the cow out, slaughter it, grind the meat, and then fix the burger? And then it comes out, it's cold. And you're like, what? It was on the shelf? <laughs> Just kidding. I'm not hating on McDonald's. The whole point is that we, we want it now, Right? We want it now. But the thing is, you don't go through the McDonald's drive-thru and say, I would like an order of spiritual maturity with a side of humility, please. <laughs> Two minutes or a discount. Do you, some of you are old enough in here to remember when McDonald's used to do that. They had a clock timing backwards, and they promised your order by a certain time where you'd get a discount. Oh, that was fun. You'd pull around the corner, and there's the clock backwards, and you're like, oh, come on, be late. Be late. <laughs> you get a discount. Oh, goodness. It's not like that, though, in our life with the Lord. There are some things that happen only with the course of time, only with the course of process, of, of growing in maturity. Honestly, one of God's great and main ways to grow you is by putting you in a wilderness, I'm sorry, even Jesus went into the wilderness. Not because he was being punished by God. Oh, on the contrary. Not because God thought he just needed a time out, or he got woke up and was angry at his perfect son. No, 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 no. Because even the very son of God submitted himself to the process of time. And grew in his identity as, it's a mystery, as God in the flesh. But that's for next week because we're pre preaching on Jesus' wilderness next week. So John the Baptist is who we're looking at today. John the Baptist had a wilderness experience that was actually most of his life. Most of his life, he lived all of his adult life. 
He lived in the wilderness, in hiddenness, with no platform, no following, no YouTube channel, no group of disciples around him. He just was with God in the wilderness, letting the Spirit prepare him, being 100% pleasing to the Lord. Do you know that most scholars say John the Baptist's public ministry was about six months? Somewhere between three months and one and a half years, but most likely around the six months. He spent his entire life in a wilderness to have six months of public ministry and then go into jail and be beheaded. And this man, this is the one that Jesus himself said, he's the greatest of all prophets. Actually, it says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. We just view life completely different than God, don't we? We just view it completely different. If someone in obscurity all of a sudden becomes like uh, really famous in the Christian world and they have a preaching ministry of six months and then they just fall off the face of the earth, but everybody, like, everybody knows about them for that six months. We think, gosh, what happened to them? Wow. They must have just really, like, <laughs> do they just mess up? They're not in the spotlight anymore? Well, maybe, but maybe not. So I was thinking about this tool the Lord has of forming us through time. And actually, it was just like for the last couple days, I've been just meditating on the process that pottery goes through to become a finished product. And I actually felt like the Lord several days ago said, Autumn, I want you to research what the process of pottery making. And I love pottery. I have nothing expensive. I have nothing expensive in my house, period. I mean, things are hand-me-downs and uh, Hobby Lobby. 50% 50% off. Woo! Those are good days, right? Anyway, I brought over a little sampling of things that I had for my house, pieces of pottery, and I have been researching what it takes to create something useful out of clay. You know, each piece of pottery, this is an old crock. It might be about 100 years old, actually. Who knows? It's from my grandma. And she never threw anything away, and that came in handy because I liked antiques. And so I, I got this from her, and they would store food in it and put cheesecloths over it and, you know, all different kinds of things. I have, I have one of these crocks that, are, that uh, is, holds 20 gallons, and they used to make cr- uh, sauerkraut in it. Can you imagine what that smelled like? That's a lot of sauerkraut. That's a lot of stink, too. Yeah. And so I've been thinking about, I love this one. This one came from Target, that really expensive. Target, guys, Target. <laughs> so um, do you know that before you ever get the, in, even into the process of molding a piece of pottery, you first have to have clay. Clay is found in dirt. There's actually a 12-step process that dirt has to go through to become pure clay. 
clay, you know, if clay is mixed, let's say, uh, let's say you have soil, clay is mixed with the different sediments in the soil, and they, they'll take some of the soil, and they'll put water in it, and they have to mix it completely with the water, then they let, let it sit. And as it sits, the clay actually rises to the surface, mixes with the water, and then you can skim the clay water, they call it, off of the sediment. You have to make sure the rock and the other parts of the dirt don't get in to the clay water. And you do this over and over. If you wanted to make pottery from scratch, you could do this, is provided that there's some clay in our soil, which it probably is. You could go to your backyard, dig down underneath the topsoil, put a bucket there, pour water into it, mix it, and after it sits for a while, there'll be the clay will separate, and there'll be a little bit, little bit of clay mixed with the water. Skim it off. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Until finally... You've got this little, after actually 12 steps, honestly, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> you could get a lump of clay. And then, now, you're f- still pretty far from having a piece of pottery, right? <laughs> you just have a lump of clay. But everything that you need for making pottery is in that clay. And what does God say about us? He is the potter. We are the clay. Look at the picture, though, what that means. Then the potter takes the clay, and now he goes through about eight different steps to make a piece of pottery. First, he'll do something called wedging it, which means he works the clay. He works it over and over like almost like kneading bread because he has to get all of the air bubbles out of the clay. He has to make sure the clay is like mixed so perfectly that it won't be bubbly or it won't, it won't have like, um, you know, uh, flaws in it because it wasn't worked correctly. So he wedges it, they call it. And then he'll, he'll go through the process of molding it. This is where they take it and they say they throw it. They put it onto the wheel and they're throwing the pot, the clay, and the wheel spins. Oh, I would love to get a potter in here and do an illustrated sermon someday. If you know a potter, hook me up, okay? Someone who's got a wheel, let me know about it. The wheel spins, and the master begins his molding, right? Actually quite difficult. I'm Sure, I feel like it should be easy, but I have a feeling it's not. <laughs> when you watch a master do it, you're like, oh, look at that. Up it comes, right? And he begins to mold it and mold it. Then once he thinks, the potter thinks, okay, I like the shape. Then they take that piece of molded clay and you put it on the shelf. Have you ever felt like you're on the shelf? <laughs> like, why am I just on the shelf, Lord? I want to be used more. I want to do great things for you. No, you, you shel- it just they shelves it. And the piece of pottery now has to go through a process of air drying. But it only dries to the point that it feels like leather. And now it's time to trim it. Because no matter how much of a master that potter is, it'll have sharp edges on it. So now that it's it's hard, but not, it's not super soft, but it's not completely hard. The potter will take it off the shelf again and begin to cut off and trim the sharp edges on the bottoms, on the sides. Painful, it's us, right? Ooh. But some of us need some rough edges cleared up, right? The potter is willing, he's willing to do it. 
Then after he trims it some more, guess what he does? Back on the shelf. Because it's got to dry even more. And then it comes to a point where it's dry to the touch, but guess what? It's still not really dry all the way through. And now it's time for the pottery to go into the fire. And that piece of pottery will go into a kiln at 1,500 degrees to 1,900 degrees Fahrenheit. And in that heat, every ounce of water is evaporated out of it, is drawn from the clay. There's nothing, there's no impurity left in it. There's no water left in that piece of pottery. It's completely dried out. It'll be in that high of a temperature for 10 hours for the first firing. And even after that, it has to sit for two days to cool. You can't, cool, you can't speed the process up or you'll compromise the pottery. You'll make it fragile. The pottery, if it wants to be beautiful, if it wants to be useful, must submit to a process of molding and firing and trimming. And after several days, you're still not done because it's not glazed yet. It's just fired, hard pottery, but now it has to go through the process of glazing. This is where, like, if you're ever going to eat on a plate, you, have, you want it to be able to wash it off and the food not to absorb into it, and et cetera, so it has to be glazed, either decoratively, maybe it gets, like, a, a like dyes are in the glazes or something or whatever it is. So it goes through a, another process called glazing where it becomes beautiful, smooth, and optimum, optimum usefulness happens because of the glazing. And after you're done glazing, guess what? Back in the fire again. Because that glaze has to become literally one with the piece of pottery. It can't just be paint on the outside to chip off. It has to be baked into it. And this time, 1,700 degrees Fahrenheit for 12 hours, the piece of pottery goes into the kiln again, and it bakes for another 12 hours, and then it cools for three days. And then, my friends, just like as easy as that, you can buy this at Hobby Lobby. Oh, I took the price tag off. I'm guessing seven bucks. <laughs> I don't know how anyone ever makes a living doing pottery. They do it in mass, I suppose. I'm going somewhere with that illustration. <laughs> Sometimes when we're in our wildernesses, when we are in seasons of adversity, it's very hard for us to see that this thing is going somewhere, right? But friend, nothing beautiful ever happens if it doesn't go through the fire. You can never look like the image of Christ if you're not molded by the master. If you're not 
trimmed those rough edges off, if you're not submitting to his process. And I tell you, when we get into a wilderness, which in the Bible, wildernesses were literally barren places, right? Barren, lonely places. And they were also spiritually, maybe barren places, places of adversity, let's just say, where there's adversity at some place in your life. Wilderness. When we get into a wilderness, our first reaction is, God, get me out of this. <laughs> Have you ever been there? I don't like this. I don't want to be here. Get me out of here. And I, you feel like you're kicking and screaming, what is happening? Not all wildernesses are the same in Severity, sometimes that we're going through something in our finances. You know, it's a type of wilderness and adversity, but praise God, everything's fine in our homes. Sometimes there's something up with our marriages or with some of our children, or there's a, there's a great wilderness that we're going through at workplace where we're just having to submit under hardship. You know, whatever it is, whatever your wilderness is, our, your wilderness is your rabbi coming to you in the desert. Your rabbi saying, I'm here to teach you. Jesus comes to you in the desert, in the wilderness, and says, I'd love to cut some edges off of you right now. The wilderness is where our character is honed and formed so we actually can carry out our assignments, which we're going to see so beautifully in John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the greatest of all prophets, right, by the words of Jesus, spent majority of his life letting his character be honed in the wilderness. All right, I'm going to tell you a story, and then we're actually going to look at John the Baptist. See all those scriptures in your handout? It's really coming. And if I can't get through it all, it's no big deal. I'll just stop. Just preach till it's time to end, and then I'll stop. And then we'll pick up next week, maybe. So um, I just want to tell you a story about how wildernesses hone your character. So true. It's so true. When we don't have what we know we've been promised and we have to wait, there's character being formed in us. So much character. Oh, ouch. (laughs) So, um... You know, uh, we've been in Huron 16 and a half years, I believe, right? No, 17 and a half years. 17 and a half years. We came in tw- 2005. 17 and a half years, we, years ago, we came and planted James River Church. We uh, started in our living room of our house with about eight people. And then after a few months, we rented a uh, downtown space. Just curious, how many of you were with us downtown in the storefront? All right, yeah, the good old, yes, you were, honey. You were little, but you were there. <laughs> Akaya, yeah, Akaya. <laughs> Came home from China to the storefront church. It's great. So we were, we were in a little storefront um, down here, and we uh, just renting it, and we remodeled that space, made it our own. It had, it was a, a what is it? What's the dress shop that's in there? Unique what? Black tie, black tie. That's, that was our storefront. We rented it from them. And it had like um, 
bright pink carpet all the way through the entire <laughs> front of the store. Like 80s, that was kind of cool. You know, pink and blue carpet, that color of pink. Oh, it was a statement. All the way from the front door to the back, pink carpet. So eventually, you know, we just blood and sweat. You know, we tiled and we carpeted and we painted and we made it our own. And and um, and we 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 got to the. We were focusing on what we felt like the Lord wanted us to focus on, which was discipleship, not a building, but discipling and sharing Christ. And eventually, um, we had to move out of that building. We started renting the the YWCA, this building. We had it one day a week. It looked very, very different. Um, you might remember those of you. Oh, how many of you were here in the early days before we owned this building? All right, there we go. When we just rented it, and it was a maze of like different class or different like offices in there and counters, you kind of had to make your way through to get back here into this room. Anyway, and we just rented this for years. So we had, we were had been into in town here for like twelve years, and we didn't own our own building yet. And we had been saving, and we had been diligent, and we're good stewards of what God's given us. And um, but we didn't own our own building, and. I'll tell you what, for me personally, I'm an owner, not a renter. I just, I owned a house when I was 20 years old. Jeff and I got married at 20 and bought a little trailer house and just made it a castle. It's great. Love that little house. I mean, we're just, I just say we're just owners, not renters. Like, I, I want to own it. I want to make it my own. I want to, you know, I just, ugh, you know dealing with landlords, dealing with different, just, I don't know, whatever, personalities, all of the stuff. You just want to be able to make it your, your own. And so for 12 years, we waited patiently. And there were a couple times, twice, that we felt like we should pursue something as, in a prop, as a property. And the second time, the green light of the Holy Spirit was on it so much, we absolutely could not deny God was opening a door for us to pursue a building in town. It, it, was, uh, it was an old school building. It was owned by the school district. The school district approached us. They, I mean, the favor was there. They were taking us step by step with the process, walking us through the process. That's how much favor we had. This is what you need to do to try to get this building. And um, so we, we did a tremendous amount of work to prepare to uh, bid on a building in town here of, uh, that was going up for sale. And we had to do research on it. We had to present proposals to the city. We, I mean, we really actually did a lot of work and had so much favor each step of the way, each step of the way. And right before, like days before, we were, the building was coming up for auction and we were to go and bid. We found out that another church in town was planning on bidding on the same building, which there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's nothing immoral about that. Um, but up to this point, no one was interested in the building. And we had no problem bidding against a contractor in town, but Jeff and I felt absolutely convicted that we could not use God's money to bid up another church. Like, we just couldn't do it. Everyone's in the kingdom here. They're in the kingdom. We're in the kingdom. We're not going to use our money to bid something up to make it more expensive to see who can, I mean, we're just not going to do it. It's God's money, and I'm not going to make someone else get it at a higher price. 
or try to outbid my brother for a reason. You know, I'm like, God, you've got to be big enough for, um, to give everybody in your family resources that need it, right? But we're talking, this news came up within a couple days of when we were going to be in that room bidding on this property that we had prayed for for 12 years. And I remember feeling in my spirit, and, and, and I, I say it again, I do not, this is not casting shade on this other church or anything. Like, I, they didn't know all the process we'd went through. And it was like, it's just, it, it was the Lord honing my character. Because I really was like, I, we're supposed to have that building. What is going on here? And I remember the, within minutes of finding out what the situation is and knowing like in my own heart, my own convictions, and when in times of trial and when the heat is turned up, never go against your convictions, no matter what or who you'll disappoint. Never go against your convictions, ever, even if they're not someone else's convictions. Never, ever sear your own conscience, ever. Remember, Shannon shows up, and I said, Shannon, what is God doing? This thing just happened, and I tell her the moment, she's like, this doesn't feel right. This just doesn't feel right. Of course it doesn't feel right because we prayed for the building for 12 years. Of course it doesn't feel right. Nothing feels right. And she's like, let me pray. And I'm like, please. And because I'm just like, I just want to know what God's doing. I have no idea what my friend said, but I close my eyes and I'm instantly in a vision. She's praying and I am seeing myself standing in the nations. And the Lord said to me so clearly, if you, Autumn, will go to the end of the line and serve another. I'll give you fruit in the nations. That was about six years ago. Immediately. I mean, I knew. I was like, this is, this is our word. We go low. We serve another, and it doesn't matter. God will give us. I'm so, he did, he gave us this building a couple years later. I'm so happy with this building. It meets our needs. It's easy to keep up. Oh, I love it. I'm so grateful for this building. And I'll be even more grateful when we can push that wall out and build on, right? Just got to keep the vision going here. Cast the vision for the expansion. I love it. I, God totally is meeting our needs, right? He's so good. He has enough resources for all his kids. Nobody has to compete. The whole point was, that word came to us. It was a wilderness honing. It was literally God's wilderness to hone me and hone my character. That year, we sent more people out on short-term missions trips than we had ever sent. And this year, we've sent more people out on long-term trips than we've ever sent. Truly, God, he immediately began to give us fruit in the nations. Who are we? Like, look around. I mean, we're just like a... My people would say a little church, smaller. But we have reach by God's grace in Huron and literally into the nations of the earth. This year, from this church, there will be people preaching the gospel in the Middle East. Right now, there's someone in South Africa. Brianna's there, feet on the ground in South Africa, preaching the gospel. There will be people in Southeast Asia. Look around. How could we have that much fruit? 
There are lessons to be learned in the wilderness. We want to learn our lesson. You don't want to fight against the wilderness. When you're disappointed, when you didn't get what you felt like you deserved or what you felt like you really wanted or what you felt like even God had promised you, be patient. His promises are true. He always fulfills his promises. He just doesn't always do it when you think he's going to. But he always fulfills his promises. This is not a faithless message. This is a faith-filled message. God will absolutely fulfill every promise to you. And you might have to go through a lot of adversity in the meantime. But it's okay. He's just got lessons to learn. And when we can go through our wilderness seasons and we change the question from, God, when are you going to get me out of this, to God, what do you want to teach me? Whew. Game changer. Game changer. I could just stop right there. Actually, I had a dream that I forgot to preach my message And Abby says to me, yeah, you just preached, you just told the story and then ended. (laughs) I guess I could. (laughs) Uh, Let's look at John the Baptist, though, because we got a little time here. Praise God. You guys with me still? A little warm in here. I think the AC might need to be turned on if it's not. Cecile, could you just look at it make sure the AC's on? And set it 70. Now that we've made it all summer without an air conditioner, we just want you guys to know it's coming this week. So all that means next summer, we are blue. <laughs> yeah, just in time for winter. We're getting our AC. And guys, we can't be short, short-sighted here. We have to think about next summer, we will not have AC drama, by God's grace. We've had AC drama every year we've ever lived in this building. Like, fill it with Freon, pray over it. <laughs> See how long it will last? The drama of the AC unit is over. Okay. So for those of you that don't know who John the Baptist is, John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin, earthly cousin. Isn't that cool? And um, he was, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. We actually know that because Elizabeth was three months pregnant when the angel came to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and said, you're going to be with child. And don't worry, even Elizabeth, who's old in age, is pregnant with a miracle baby. And we know that Mary went to see Elizabeth to see if it was true for the confirmation of the word. And there was Elizabeth pregnant. And it was said about John the Baptist, the prophecy over him, he will be full of the spirit even since in the womb. I mean, this was a child with a destiny, okay? A child with a destiny. And uh, John the Baptist, though, spent most of his existence in the wilderness, in hiddenness, living the life of a Nazarite, living the life of one consecrated to the Lord. We might say like a monk would be in our day. But in the wilderness, and these are just, I'm going to just go through John the Baptist's life, and just we're just going to pull out some of the things that God produces, produced in John the Baptist, but produces in us when we go through difficult seasons when we go through wildernesses. In the wilderness, guess what? You learn who you are, and you learn who you're not in wilderness seasons. So John 1, 19, it says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Okay, he's starting to preach now, and he's getting such a crowd. There's, the spirit is on him. The message is so clear. 
he is preaching this cutting edge prophetic message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. The Messiah is coming. And he's getting attention. People are going out to the wilderness to see him. And so people start coming to him and saying, who are you? Who do you think you are? Who are you? And he says, he confessed. He did not deny, but he confessed. I am not the Christ. They thought he might be because of the anointing on his life. He says, I'm not the Christ. And then it goes on. Says, they come and say, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? And he says this, I am a voice of one. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. What did he say? He knows who he's not, and he knows who he is. I'm just a voice pointing to him. Isn't that who we should be? Voices pointing to the one? Lights shining on the one? City on a hill, not to be glorified, but city on a hill, reflecting the light? Reflecting the glory of God. And John, who knew who he was, I'm a, I am a man with a voice pointing to God. And he knew who he wasn't. The wilderness cures our God complexes. <laughs> whatever, whatever big, powerful thing you think you are or think you can do, you die to it in the wilderness. And I don't mean you're the glory of God in Christ Jesus. You are beautiful. You have the anointing of the Lord on you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. But you are not God. And sometimes our stress and anxiety is because we are carrying the wrong burden. You can't save anybody, but you sure can preach. And Jesus can save them. If you're feeling pressure because you're sharing Christ and nobody's getting saved, hey, pressure's off. You're not God. All you do is share. You just reflect him. You be the voice pointing to him. It's not up to you that anybody gets saved. No pressure. Well, I'm praying for people they are not getting healed. I want to see people get healed. I think we need to press into it as a church. Really. But you're not the one that makes the blind eyes open. You're the one who is obedient to God to pray and declare and believe. No pressure, though. Pressure's not on you. You're just the voice in obedience to Jesus. You're the voice pointing and proclaiming who he is. Can someone say, amen? <laughs> You're not God. Woo! I'm not God. I'm not responsible. I'm just responsible to be obedient. I'm just responsible to say what he tells me to say. But I actually am not the one that changes everything God is. I'm the one that partners with the big guy, the powerful one. And he works in and through us, but he's the one doing the heavy lifting all the time. Other lessons that we can see from John the Baptist, things that we learn in the wilderness. In the wilderness, you not only learn who you are and who you're not, you also learn who God is. If you just follow on in John chapter 1, you know, John is saying, they're asking who you are, and he, he says, I, I, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah reincarnated. You know, like, I mean, they're asking some kind of crazy questions. I know who I am. I'm one pointing to, to the great one. But then it says, 
you learn who God is because it goes on in John 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the first earthly proclamation out of a human being about who God is, who Jesus was. He, John the Baptist was the first human being to recognize who Jesus was, to recognize his worth, his Godhead, his purpose. He learned it because of years in the wilderness. His heart was so tender. He was so attuned to the Lord. He is so shut out the world and sin and all the competing voices that he was able. And it says, it, it, it goes on, it says, um, this is the, who, the one to whom I said, after me comes one who ranks before me. What is he saying? He's saying, this is the one who was before me. This is the one who was before the foundation of the world. The revelation that John the Baptist had of the risen of Jesus Christ and who he was is astounding. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. There was a moment, it's not like John the Baptist came out of the womb understanding that his cousin Jesus was the Son of God. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit over the course of time and by the confirmation because he says, 32, John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And later it says, I was told, John was told, the one to you, who you see the Spirit descend and remain on, he, he's the Christ. And so when John, out of obedience, baptized Jesus, we know that the heavens split and the, the booming voice came, Father, saying he's pleased with Jesus. And the, and the, the uh, dove, the Holy Spirit, descended in bodily form and whoosh, rested on Jesus. And John had eyes to see it in the Spirit. And he knew at that moment, that's God in the flesh. Our wildernesses, we learn who we are in God, but we also learn who God is, yeah. who he really is. We can preach his faithfulness all day long, but when you're in adverse circumstances and he comes through, you know it deeper. You know it deeper. You really know this thing that he's taught Israel. You don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of my mouth. Don't walk by what you see. You walk by faith in me, my word, and my promises. And guess where that thing goes deep? In wildernesses in the wilderness you die to the affirmations of man and you learn to look to God for your identity and your affirmation ouchie right it's the wilderness where you get weaned from the breast milk of people's affirmations (laughs) I just gotta hear you like me I just got to hear that you love me. Did you like my sermon? Did you see me, that good thing I did? Guess what? It's time for weaning. (laughs) 
And the wilderness will wean you from the need to be affirmed by people. I love being affirmed by people. We should affirm each other all the time, right? But we can't get our identity from it. We can't get our joy from that alone. Instead, in the wilderness, you get weaned from that and you begin to learn how to eat from the manna of God's promises and from his faithfulness and from what he has said about you. And in wilderness seasons, that's where you learn those moments where you're like, God, if nobody sees this, if you're pleased with me, that's all that matters. I tried to do something nice. I was falsely accused. But I guess I have to now rest in the fact that you saw it all. And my ultimate affirmations come from you, right? That's what wildernesses do for you. And that's what wildernesses did for John the Baptist. In the wilderness, you also die to your own agenda. And you learn to walk under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. The wilderness is a death to self-exaltation. So John the Baptist, here he is hidden. You would think like, okay, he's hidden for all those years. No platform, just going deep with God in the desert. And now it's his moment, right? He starts preaching and proclaiming. The, the crowds are coming out to him. He's drawing such attention. It says later that King Herod put him into prison because he said he corrected King Herod on something. Anyway, King Herod, yeah. King Herod, yeah, he was uh, real wicked, and he took his brother's wife as his own wife. And, and John was like, you're wicked, you're wicked, unrighteous. You had no, you should have never done that. It's total adultery. And so King Herod puts him in jail. The whole point, he had so much wind on his messages that kings were hearing it. I do not think President Biden listens to me on the live stream. But if you are, we love you. I'm glad that you're hearing this. I seriously doubt President Trump ever tuned into JRC here on YouTube. I'd love it if he did, but I don't think so, right? John the Baptist had so much weight and glory on his ministry when it went public that kings were listening to what he had to say. It says the leading Pharisees, Sadducees, these were the political leaders and highest religious leaders in the entire nation were coming out to see him. Mostly criticized him, but nonetheless, nonetheless see him. It said that centurions and Roman guards would come out to him. What would they say? What do I need to do for salvation? He'd say, repent, quit lying, quit false testifying. He'd tell them exactly what they need to do. So here's John the Baptist. He's waited his entire life for this moment when he's proclaiming a message and there's people hearing. There's influence. He waited his entire life for this moment. And however long his ministry was, whether it was six months, three months, nine months, it wasn't long. Jesus comes into his public ministry. And it says, after this, in John 3, it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing, um, at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. There, this was before John was put in prison. Verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said, Rabbi, 
that man, talking about Jesus, who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going over to him. So John's disciples are trying to watch out for him. They're watching his back. And they're saying, listen, you baptized that guy. And now look at everybody's leaving you and going over and listening to him. They're not even being loyal to you and to your message and to your ministry. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about this, John? Your ministry's shrinking. You spent your entire life preparing for this moment. And after six months, it looks like it's falling apart. It's just falling apart. And John says this. A person can only receive what was given to him from heaven. That is so powerful. (laughs) You're not responsible for what you don't have. You're only responsible for what you have. A person can only receive what's given to him from heaven. It says, you yourself can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. This is John talking about himself. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, talking about the church or Israel, belongs to the bridegroom, which is Jesus. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Or I, I must, he must increase, I must decrease, some versions say. John didn't come out of the desert, out of the wilderness season, full of himself, holding on to anything that he could grab with power and ministry. He came out dead to his own dreams and saying, listen, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. My whole life is just waiting for Jesus, for the bridegroom to arrive. Now I hear his voice. He's teaching and people are going to him. Good, let him go. I'm done. My whole existence was just to point to him. If people are leaving me to follow him, I must decrease, he must increase. I can only receive what's given to me from heaven. Go ahead, follow him. We actually know that some of Jesus' disciples actually had been John's disciples, says it right in the scripture. Some of Jesus' closest disciples. This is a man who had died to his own agenda way before he ever got a platform, before he ever got a ministry. Jeff and I tried to do this really hard. We really lean into this. I'll say it publicly. I love to say this. We don't own any person in this room. We don't own you. We don't own you. You do whatever God calls you to do. You, I mean, I I encourage you to be part of a body, to submit yourself one another to one another. Yeah, yeah, there's all of that, but we have no ownership of you. You are owned by the Lord. If God calls you to move, if God calls you to go to the nations, we bless you. I kind of had to almost shed a few tears when we lost our Deacon Stanley (laughs) to maps. And I was like, yes, we don't own you. Go, Stanley. But I was also like, what are we going to (laughs) do? Okay, what are we going to do? I don't own him, Lord. I don't own anyone. I don't own anyone. You own your people. You're the bridegroom. We're the bride. We just listen to your voice and do what you say. 
the wilderness kills self-exaltation and self-agenda. In the wilderness, you also choose to lose your life so it can be saved. The fear of man is crucified in the wilderness years in John. He came out of the wilderness unafraid to preach righteousness no matter what. This is so applicable to us right now. There is such a war against righteousness in our nation. There's such a pressure to be silent on on issues of righteousness, of issues of right and wrong. There there is such, and it's hard because we want to walk in love, so you're always like, well, is this the right time to speak up? I tell you what, you got to speak up sometime. And I understand. I understand that we're gentle with people and we follow the Spirit's leading and Sometimes when I'm witnessing to someone, I choose to say something, and sometimes I choose not to say something, trying my best to be led by the Spirit. What's he doing at that moment? But I tell you what, if, it's, if we have the fear of man in us, we're going to miss the glory of the season. The wilderness kills the fear of man out of you. John was so effective because he just said, I'm a voice and I'm going to speak what he tells me to speak. And his message was, was amazing, but it was super controversial. Repent. And it's about as unpopular then as it is now. Turn from your wickedness. Stop doing that. Repent. Turn to God. He's coming, right? But there's something about, and this is the last thing I'm just going to pull out of here, something about the wilderness where I really believe this you go from being an echo to a voice in the wilderness. The Lord will use adversity to take his word and to drive it deep inside of you, where you're not just echoing another man's sermon. You're not just echoing another person's testimony. It's yours. It's yours. And this is a season, I really believe it, like I I am looking to the return of Christ. I'm looking to his return. And he is raising up a whole new generation of John the Baptist, not just one, but literally a church, a bride who will be like the ministry of John the Baptist was to the first coming. There will be a ministry of John the Baptist for his second coming. There will be ones who are crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. Leave your sin. It's not worth it. Leave it behind. Come to the king. He's worth it. Woo, I'm excited. That's who I want to be, right? I want to be one crying out the voice in this day, helping prepare for his second coming. It's going to get dicey, guys. I really think things on the earth are going to get dicey. I think we can't be clinging to comfort in this hour. It's just not the season for it. Leave it behind. Your dreams about comfort, I, I like comfort more than uncomfortableness, but leave it behind. It can't be your dream. You got a new dream. He's coming, and I get to be a voice that points to Jesus, that points the world to Christ. Oh, We call these people forerunners. Bapti- the, the, John the Baptist, he went ahead. He was running ahead. 
preparing for Christ. And there's a whole generation of forerunners rising up that will run ahead preparing for Jesus' second coming. And I think our message will be very much similar to John the Baptist. He preached, his preaching was 100% focused on God. He pointed to one thing, the Christ is coming. He's worthy, he's coming. His preaching had a strong message of repentance from sin and living righteously. This is what he preached. He would look at the Pharisees and say, you're nothing but a brood of vipers. Oh, ow. You're nothing but a brood of vipers. Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? Repent. Whoa. He preached about the coming judgment that every person, every per- this is the same message, guys. Every one of us will stand before Jesus. And for those of us who are in Christ, we stand before him in the blood of Jesus, in the righteousness of Christ. And those that don't know him will stand before him also, and they'll bow. Everyone bows. Everyone bows sometime. You either get to bow to God, Jesus Christ, in this life, and then inherit with him all things, or you bow at the judgment when you hear the verdict. You rejected me in life, so you're rejected now. Away from me. Everyone bows, though. It's a wise, wise man, a wise woman who bows now to Jesus' leadership. The wilderness helps us cut away the fat and realize what is really important. What's the gospel? What's really important? That's what I want to focus on. Oh, praise God. Thank you, Lord. I, I really felt like the Lord, one of the things the Lord wants us to be conscious about as we're going through difficulty, is this idea that he wants to take his word deep in seasons of adversity so that we're not the echo, but we're the voice. Like, we're not just echoing someone else's words. Have faith, have faith, have faith. Love God, love God, love God. Think about an echo is each time it reverberates off, it's just a little bit more muffled, isn't it? When you, when you hear an echo like in a canyon, and you're like, hello, hello, hello. Love Jesus, love Jesus, love Jesus, love Jesus. The most, impo- most powerful thing is the original voice, right? The echo is just kind of, oh, I'm glad you're saying that, but it's a little muffly, a little bit, whoo, 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 whoo. <laughs> Our first year in Huron was really hard. I'm going to end with this, and we're just going to pray. It was really difficult. We almost didn't make it. Many of you have heard our testimony. We honestly almost didn't make it, but God's grace. And um, we were approaching the end of one year in Huron, and it was, re- it was unbelievable difficulty in that year. And Malachi had been really sick. He was only three, and he had been just, we'd all gotten, um, we'd all were sick constantly, honestly, for a couple years moving here. Um, and Malachi had gotten, little three-year-old, gotten, like, the flu or something, but he never recovered. He just, like, never got his strength back fully. I mean, he was a really 
lively kid, okay? And he was just laying on the couch, just like weeks after he had recovered, he would still just lay on the couch, and he would just say, Mama, I don't feel, I don't feel. He meant, I don't feel good. And uh, one day I was praying, and I was like, Lord, I just immediately felt super alerted in my spirit. And I was coming home from work, and I felt like the, the Lord actually told me, take him to the doctor tomorrow. And um, I got home, and I walked through the door, and Jeff says, I was praying, and I felt like the Lord told me to, that we need to take Malachi to the doctor. It was the exact same thing the Lord told me. And I was like, okay. So we went to the doctor, and we had looked up some things in, like, a child remedy. I don't know. One of those books, like, if your sick kid is sick, what could it be kind of book. <laughs> they actually used to have books. First of all, there's a thing called a book. <laughs> and some of us who are older than 30, we used to read them. <laughs> now we have phones and tablets. But <laughs> Anyway, um, and so the next day uh, we took him into the doctor and um, really thinking like, oh, there's this list of things that could be. It's probably just this little thing right here. It's no big deal. Anyway, got a, we took some blood work and we um, got a phone call and they were like, Malachi has diabetes, and uh, they're like, it's, it's really urgent. You have to get him to Sioux Falls. We've already made you an appointment, and his blood sugar was through the roof, and, and um, they're like, we're afraid he's going to go into a diabetic coma. It was, oh, it, was so, oh, it was awful. It was so awful. He's so little. It was so scary. I mean, it's just terrifying, and um. We didn't, you know, I just remember, like, he was hungry. Like, we're trying to just gather up a few clothes and just get into the car. And he was hungry, and Jeff was making him a PBJ. And I was like, I don't know much, but I know he can't have that. Like, literally, just like, he can't have peanut butter and jelly. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I know nothing about diabetes, hardly, other than I don't think sugar is good. <laughs> and we're like, here's a piece of chicken. <laughs> like, we just didn't know what to do. And we get in the car. We race to Sioux Falls, and the Lord had prepared us for the moment. We didn't realize we were being prepared for the moment. But the Lord had prepared us for the difficult moment that was going to be. And he had, I had been in Hebrews chapter 10 for weeks. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Whatever you do, do not shrink back. You are not of those that shrink back and are destroyed, but you are of those that have faith and believe unto salvation. I had been in that scripture, in that scripture, and I could hear the Spirit speaking through the scripture, Autumn, don't shrink back. Autumn, don't throw away your confidence in me. I'm here in this moment. I'm here. I didn't leave you. I'm here in this moment. This is a bad moment, but I haven't abandoned you. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we race to the hospital, and then it's just this process of keeping him there for days, trying his blood sugar stabled, learning about um, how to manage this, you know, hearing things like um, it's only treatable, it's not curable. Of course, we have a greater faith, right? We believe God for something greater. But there's still something about being the young mom, young dad, walking through that with your little one. And all the shots, you get five shots a day. And he'd like start hiding behind the couch after he ate because he didn't want his poke. Oh, goodness. But I'll tell you what. 
Now that was a demonic attack straight from the pit of hell into this day. We we're believing for absolute full restoration. That disease did not come from the heart of the father. He didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'm just going to strike a little three-year-old with diabetes to teach my people some lesson. Okay? I don't have all the reasons why it happened or was allowed, but I know I'm contending for his healing to this day. I know where the source that came from, but nonetheless, the point of this is, I just had to insert that in case someone's wondering. That was such a wilderness for me as a mom. So much pain in it, so much sorrow in it, so much worry and having to get on top. But there's something that happened in the middle of that adversity. There was something that happened. Literally, the Lord grabbed a hold of me in a way I can only say I felt like I became like a spiritual pit bull in a good way. Like I was going to grab a hold of God and nothing was going to rip me from him. And something happened on the inside of me during that wilderness where something that maybe was an echo became so real and so deep. There was a tenacity. I'm like, I don't care if we die, we're not moving from here on. Something that wasn't there before that God went deep and put in through adversity. He had other ways he could have done it. I'm not saying, like I said, I've already said it, I, I don't believe the disease from God. It was God's hand. But God can use anything in your life for your good, for those that love him. If you don't love him, forget it. He's not using all that bad stuff for your good yet, okay? Don't deceive yourself. <laughs> but as soon as you repent, it, the, all things work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He can even take the worst days, the worst wildernesses, and bring you out, and you have something on the inside that you never had before. You're now a voice where you used to be an echo. There's a faith there that's deeper. There's substance. When you speak, you're not speaking someone else's message. You're not preaching another man's sermon. You're not testifying another person's testimony. Like, you know him, you know him, you know him. And you, you knew him when you were on the hill, and you knew him even more in the valley, and now you know him. And you're forever going to know him in that way. No one can steal it from you. I don't even like wildernesses, guys. <laughs> I don't even like them. <laughs> but I think a wise woman should praise God for every single thing he's taught us through them. Right? Let's stand up. Chad, why don't you come up? <clears throat> Goodness, guys, I preached seven pages on time. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I hope you feel God's presence. I feel it. I preached myself happy. God's so good. He's so good. He's so, so good. <clears throat> We're going to worship. We're going to take one song. We're going to worship. And this is what I feel like the Lord wants us to ask God right now. What are you teaching me? If you're in a huge consuming wilderness or if you just have one area of your life that you're like, I've been 
asking God for breakthrough or to bring me into this thing for so long. I want our prayer in the next five to ten minutes as we're worshiping to shift from God, get me out of this, to Lord, you're the rabbi. You're in my wilderness right now. What do you want to teach me? You're never going to leave me. You're never going to forsake me. What do you want to teach me in this moment? I don't know if we can shorten wildernesses, but we sure can make them longer. We sure can lengthen those things out, as Israel did. <laughs> but that's the other church. You know, that's another group of people. It's not us. We're going to keep ours short, right? Just teasing. God, we love you. We love you. Lord, we worship you right now, Lord. We worship you on the mountain, in the valley. When we get what we want, when we wait, having to wait for what we know you desire to give us, we worship you. And right now we're asking you, Lord, show us if there's anything you're wanting to teach us in this moment. Or, Lord, past seasons that we want to forget about, that you're wanting to bring back up again and say, I'd like to redeem this season for you by showing you what I wanted to teach you in that. Lord, you're so good. Beautiful one. Beautiful, beautiful one. You're so good. There's no need 